It always amazes me when uh, non-Christian people say that Christians are those who just think they're better than everyone else. So you, know, you have your standard and you just need to quit judging me, quit pushing your standards on me, leave me alone. You just think you're better than other people. Now I think there's, you know, I think there's uh, a number of different reasons why people think that why, way, why they say those kinds of things. Sometimes, we looked at this last week, sometimes simply are just committed to misunderstanding what we have to say. And they want to hear what they want to hear, they don't like what you have to say, they don't like, you know, being, you know, having their gods pushed on, they don't want to be challenged, so they, they, they just, you know, it's easier for them to just, you think you're better than everybody, and, and you know, paint you with that brush. I also have no doubt that many people who claim to be Christians really do feel that they're inherently better than other people. Uh, really do think that they are somehow more worthy of, uh, you know, the rewards of the Lord. And perhaps, in between there, uh, some of us, maybe, unwittingly, sometimes give off the impression, uh, even if we don't mean to, that we think we're better than everybody else. Perhaps we, we might unwittingly do that just through maybe the way we talk about things or some of the, some of the things we discuss. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, rules and commands and laws and not a lot about God's grace or, or the fact that we ourselves are, are sinners. But regardless, it always amazes me when I hear people say this. Because the fact of the matter is that the Christian gospel is a message that is good news specifically to sinners, to sinful people. And ultimately, I mean, what is a Christian if not somebody who has seen their moral bankruptcy, utter depravity and unworthiness before God, and has simply, in faith, asked for grace and for mercy? You know, we, we are not... The declaration of a Christian is not, I'm so great, but that I was such a bad sinner and the Lord has showed me much grace. So then as the saying goes, evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread, how to find bread. That's, that's what we are as Christians. Just We're beggars who have found bread, have been given bread, and we, we want others to find that same bread. So the Christian message is not that we are so good, we are such good people and everybody else needs to clean up their act, but rather that there's nobody good. There's not one person who is good. First of all, me, and that we therefore all need God's grace. We all need to be forgiven by him. And the good news of the gospel is that God is in fact gracious to sinners. He does extend grace and mercy to sinners, even the absolute worst of us he can extend grace to. And this is the reality that is highlighted for us at the end of Luke chapter 7. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and we're going to look at this. And as you're flipping there, I'll just give you our outline. So we're talking about, we're looking at the grace of God, the gracious forgiveness of God. And so here's, here's our outline for today. Number one, the gracious forgiveness of God is available for notorious sinners, the worst sinners. Number two, the gracious forgiveness of God changes a person. And thirdly, the gracious forgiveness of God is received by faith in Jesus, who has the authority 
to forgive sins, who has the authority to dispense God's grace. So number one, the gracious forgiveness of God is available for notorious sinners. This is good news. So verses 36 to 40, uh, they describe what seems like an odd situation. I think you'll agree if you're not familiar as we read it. Uh, They describe the situation, what's happening, the scene. And then in verses 41 to 50, we get really what is the explanation of that, uh, of this scene, of what's going on. So let's walk through uh, 36 to 40, and then uh, we'll get the setting, the scene, and then we'll uh, spend most of our time in verses 41 to 50. So look at verse 36 with me. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house. We learn later in verse 40, this man's name is Simon. This Pharisee's name is Simon. There are a few places in the Gospels where Jesus does go and eat in the home of a Pharisee. So it's it's not totally abnormal. It maybe seems a bit strange because the Pharisees are usually presented as opposition to Jesus. And here he's in this man's house. How did that come to be? Well, if we remember, this passage is located in a, in a broader section in Luke uh, in which Jesus is revealing to people who he is. It's one of the major themes, and different people around him are trying to figure this out. Who is he? So we've seen this. Uh, the centurion is, is figuring out who this, this man is, who Jesus is. Uh, we've seen um, the... Uh, 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 um, a uh, uh, paralytic... Finding out who Jesus is, we faith in Christ. We saw John the Baptist is even still wrestling with this question we looked at last week. Who is Jesus? And now we have him in the home of this Pharisee. And so again, in, in verse 49, as we'll get to, we're going to see the crowds. The people that are there, as all this is going on, their question. Who is this man who can forgive sins? So this question, who is Jesus, uh, is, is, is a prominent one throughout this whole section. And so this passage really is, is, is further revealing who is the Christ, who is Jesus, and uh, and so uh, the the as we look at this, you know, Jesus is in the home of this Pharisee. <coughs> excuse me. He, the tone of this passage uh, is really uh, it's a cordial one. Uh, the tension that we see in a lot of the opposition of Pharisees and, and Jesus, it's not really here. So, for example, Simon uh, will call him teacher in verse forty. Uh, he seems respectful of Jesus. He's invited him in. The scene uh, suggests, as we'll get to in a moment, that Jesus is the guest of honor at this meal. So, so it, it, it seems best then to, to say that Simon, as one commentator said, is curious, though perhaps skeptical, about Jesus. So he's curious about Jesus. He's a little maybe skeptical. So he invites him over. He has this banquet, this feast, and, uh, and, and is sort of checking him out. So we're told that they reclined at the table. So this, this tells us that this is a special meal, a banquet. Uh, it wasn't normal to recline at just any old meal, uh, but they would do this for a special banquet. They would kind of lay on their side and their feet out to the side. And this was a, this was a, a way they would gather around a, a short table and, and have a banquet. Moreover, these would often be semi-public meals. So there, there would be some invited people to this thing, but the door would also be open so people could walk in and they could sit on the outskirts of this and listen to the conversation that was going on. So I think 
That's helpful information just as we look at how this woman ends up in the Pharisee's house at this banquet that she clearly was not invited to. Uh, this would not be abnormal for someone to enter in and, and, and listen to what's going on. So, keep reading with me. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, she, that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So this is quite the scene, I would suggest, uh, a memorable one. Uh, while it's not abnormal for people to come in, uh, this is not normal uh, for a woman to do this and to be wiping his feet and weeping. It causes the scene, it's memorable. We're told that this woman who comes in, moreover, was a sinner. This means she was known by her sin. It's not explicitly stated exactly what her sin was. Many conclude she was likely a prostitute. That's very possible, very plausible. Uh, but we don't know for sure, though that could be. The main point is not to draw attention to what sin or sins she was known for, but rather just to to show that she was a notorious sinner. She was known for this. This Simon even knows who this woman is. People know who she is. She's a sinner. You stay away from these types of people. Okay, that's, that's, that's his thinking. So she's, she's a sinful person, so much so that it's public and everybody knows about it. And she comes in and she does four actions, we're told. As she's weeping, we're told she wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed his feet, and she anointed them with ointment. That is an expensive perfume. This alabaster jar, she'd have to break it and, and then empty its contents, all of it, onto Jesus' feet. So again, I think we can all agree uh, that this would be a memorable meal. Uh, whatever happens next, uh, we would remember this one. So keep reading, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. So in verse 39, we now see clearly Simon's lack of faith as he draws an erroneous conclusion from this event that Jesus must not be a prophet. Or else if he was, he would know uh, what kind of woman this was, what she's known for, and, uh, and he would put an end to this. He would stop this. He would make a separation between clean and unclean. Get her out of here. She should not be touching my feet. Uh, this is what Simon is thinking. Ironically, for Simon, Jesus not only knows who this woman is and what she's all about, not only does he know her precisely, but he even responds to Jesus or to Simon's thoughts. So Simon says these things to himself, we're told, which means he's thinking this. He's not saying it out loud. He's, he's thinking what, you know, if he was a prophet, he, he would not put up with this. And so not only does Jesus know this woman, but he also knows what Simon's thinking and makes that clear in, his, in what he's about to say. So Simon's conclusions could not have been more wrong, and Jesus is going to demonstrate that. So then Jesus, he says he's got something to tell him. 
And he's going to tell a parable here uh, to make his point, to illustrate his point and to explain what in the world is going on as this woman comes in and makes this scene. So let's read this parable he tells in verse 41. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So 500 denarii would be roughly a year and a half to a year and three quarters wages. So that's the one guy. So that's a lot of money. If you think of however much you make, a year and a half of that, that's a pretty big debt. Uh, and then this, uh, this, this other debt, the 50 denarii is more like two months wages, which is certainly not nothing, but, uh, but it's, it's a lot less. It's significantly less. So these two debtors have, have this debt to this money lender, verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So, I think the parable that he tells is fairly straightforward. And yet, it's incredibly important to grasp. Uh, So, the man whose debt was larger, significantly larger, ten times larger, would obviously have a greater sense of gratitude and love for this moneylender who pardoned that debt. That's a significant debt. Uh, you, you would have a, 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 I'm sure the other guy, you know, the other guy could be grateful too, but that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to come by two months wages than it is a year and a half or a year and three quarters. So this guy, it's just a simple thing Jesus is saying, the one who's been forgiven a greater debt uh, would love this gracious partner more. Simon makes this admission, uh, I think perhaps grudgingly. He says, I suppose the one, the one who's been forgiven a greater debt. So he, I think he may be, that might indicate that he sees where this is going and it's not going to end well for him. So he, he acknowledges, I suppose, the one for whom, you know, he's been forgiven the greater debt. And then Jesus continues, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus turns to this woman, and he addresses Simon, and he tells Simon and all of us that this lady's actions are acts of love for him. That's what's happening here. He lo- she loves him. And she does this because she's had this massive debt of sins that has been wiped clean and has been canceled. She's been forgiven so much, and therefore she loves so much that she's willing to go in And even at risk of looking like a fool, she's willing to express her love to Christ and her gratitude to Him. So Jesus contrasts her actions with Simon's actions in these verses. So Simon, Jesus goes into his home, never gave him water to wash his feet. But this woman came in and with her tears was washing his feet. So Simon, this doesn't necessarily mean that Simon was being really rude to Jesus by not offering him uh, water for his feet. Remember that sandals, bare feet, hot climate, feet are going to be gross. 
so uh, it was it was it was a courtesy at the very least, uh, a nice thing to do for your guests to uh, to wash their feet. But Simon didn't do that. Simon never gave Jesus a kiss of greeting. This was a, a common practice. Uh, it still is in many parts of the world today to give a, a kiss of greeting. Simon didn't do this. Simon never anointed his head. Again, it was a kind uh, gesture to anoint a guest's head with olive oil. Simon forewent this. He didn't do this. While the woman, on the other hand, anointed his feet with expensive perfume. So much more than just olive oil, which would be cheaper. She, she uses an expensive perfume and dumps this on, on the Lord Jesus' feet. So again, it's, it's unclear that Simon, you know, the things that Simon skipped over were required acts of courtesy in, in that culture. But at the very least, it's clear here that Simon's not going out of his way, really, to express affection or kindness or love to his guest, Jesus. And this is held up in marked contrast to this woman and to what she is doing. And so Jesus concludes, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And he says, For she loved much. Now I just want to try and clear this up. This, this phrase where he says, For she loved much. So it might seem like he's saying that her love is the cause of her forgiveness when we read that statement. Okay, if that was the case, then, then, then her love would be the reason that she's been forgiven. Okay, so it might seem that way just by the way it's worded, right? Sometimes we use that word for to mean, you know, because, to mean it's, it's the cause of something. Uh, however, um, a, a few reasons why that's not what's happening here, why that's not the case. For starters, uh, this would reverse the whole parable that was just told, right? In the parable, very clearly, uh, the love that the you know, person who's been forgiven, the love that he has for the many money lender is the result of having been forgiven, right? That's very clear in the parable. It's just been, been said. So now if Jesus said that the reason this woman was forgiven was because she loved so much, that would be the exact opposite of the, the, the parable he just told. Uh, so I think just the context itself says that's not what's happening here. But another reason... Uh, the word that's translated for here isn't, doesn't always have that sense of, of causing something. So, uh, rather, the way it should be understood in this text is in the sense that her sins are forgiven as evidenced by the fact that she loved much. That's, that's what this is getting at. That's what this is meaning. We know she has had her many sins forgiven because she loves much. Right, so the love is not the cause of it, but it's the evidence of it. Okay, so, so there's other English translations, you might even be holding one, that translate it more along those lines, that make that a little more clear, a little more explicit, and that's, that's a valid translation. Uh, the, the Greek lexicon that I use is I'm looking up words in Greek, and that's, as far as I know, the most common one that, uh, that, that's, those who look at New Testament Greek use uh, from you know, across the spectrum of you know, theologically left and right. This, this is a, a good lexicon to, to know the Greek language. It includes this as a valid uh, interpretation or a valid translation of, of this Greek word. So uh, I'll just give you one example, one other place where we find this. This might be helpful. In 1 John 3.14, 
It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because, or for, we love the brothers. Okay, so their love of brothers, love of other Christians, is the evidence of passing from death to life. Right? That's how do we know we've done this? Because before we love the brothers. It's the evidence that we've passed. He's not saying we passed out of life into death. Uh, you know, the cause of that is loving the brothers. No, the love of the brothers is evidence that we've passed from life to death. And, and so it is here. Jesus is saying that we can infer from her acts of love that she has been forgiven much. So why say all that? The reason I want to say that is just to, to, to tell you, to show you, to say that uh, I'm not just, we're not just playing, you know, games here with language. We're not just playing fast and loose and, you know, we just make a word mean something when we want it to mean something and then we just completely alter it to something else when we want it to say something else. That's not what's happening here. The context of the parable we just read demands this interpretation and it's a legitimate understanding of the Greek word that's there and even the English word that's there. Okay, so so that, that's why I say all of that to you. Additionally, I'll just add, in verse 50, faith is explicitly made the cause of her salvation, the cause of her forgiveness. So she's received this salvation by faith. Not, not because she's loved everything. God has been gracious to her, and she's received this by faith. So all that to say, consider for a moment, consider for a moment, Jesus says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, are forgiven. He assures her, your sins are forgiven. The reality is, Christianity is a religion for sinners. Here we have a notorious sinner, a woman who is known for this. Everybody knows who this person is. They know how far she's fallen. She's known for her sins. There's nothing secret about it. They're out there for everybody to know, and everybody does know it. She's on the margins of society. She's despised by the Pharisees, and their minds really beyond hope because she's so wicked and wretched. And yet Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And what Simon didn't grasp is that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And that includes those whose sins were really big and really public and really well known. This is the same lesson that he, we learned back in chapter 5 when Jesus called Levi or Matthew to be a, a, a disciple. We read it earlier. I read it at the start of the service. It's the same lesson there. It's not the, it's not the healthy that need a hospital or need a doctor. It's the sick. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, to faith. Simon did not grasp this. The reality is, every person, every person has woefully fallen short of the glory of God. If we were to compare ourselves to the standard of God, the perfections of God, His demand on humanity for perfect righteousness, we will see this very quickly. We see very quickly that we all fall short, not only in our actions, but when we realize that God is the judge of our thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, we realize it gets even worse for us, how far short indeed we do fall of God's standards. Even if our sins are not public, like this woman, our sins are indeed many, 
They are great. Consider, just imagine, if you're unconvinced, imagine all the sinful things you've done and all the sinful things you've thought were just played on a screen for the world to see. I think quickly you'd probably be convinced that it's worse than you maybe thought. But the good news of the gospel is that God forgives sinners. Grace is available for the worst of sinners. And so, to those who don't believe, if you're here now or as we go out from this place even, to those who don't believe, our message is to see your sinfulness and confess this to God and to know that there's nobody who's beyond the grace of God. There's nobody who is too dirty that they cannot be saved by God, that they're beyond his power and ability to rescue, that they're beyond the, um, the, the amount of his grace that he offers. No matter the shamefulness of one's past, no matter the depth of depravity, no matter how badly you've hurt somebody or how repeatedly you've done these things, God offers gracious pardon to sinners. We deserve his wrath, but God does delight to show steadfast love. He does delight to show mercy to people. And this is the good news. This is the thing we have to offer. Even as we discuss sin and talk about sin, whether it's here or with other people, it's that people might just see it and confess that to God and receive his grace. And so, do not let your wretchedness keep you from Christ. He came to save sinners. It's the sick who need the hospital, who need the doctor. He came to save sinners. And if you've received that forgiveness and that grace, uh, consider how much you've been pardoned. Consider that God knows and sees everything you've ever done or thought, and yet has forgiven you, has forgiven us, everyone who's trusting in Christ. That's a significant amount of grace. Do you lack in your love, in your affection for God? Perhaps you've lost sight of your sinfulness. Perhaps you've lost sight of just how bad sin is. Just how much of it has been present in your life from day one through to now. And that's, this, so this is one of the benefits of remembering our sinfulness. Is that it might cause us, as Jesus says, to love the Lord more. When we see just how much we've been forgiven. The Apostle Paul he did not mope around. He didn't mope about his sinfulness, and yet he never forgot it. And he never forgot it. He, he declares that he was the chief, the greatest of sinners, and yet grace abounded even to me. And you see throughout his writings how this wells up into praise of God. How is it Paul has such expressions of praise? Because he understands just how sinful he was and just how much he's been forgiven. And therefore, this great... This grace he's been shown is, in, is truly great. It's truly a lot. I remember thinking as a kid, uh, reading this passage, I grew up in church. I was a good kid. and I didn't get into a lot of trouble. I remember thinking, uh, you know, as I read this passage, well, I guess I'll just never really be able to love Christ that much because uh, I just have never really been that bad. Uh, I don't have, if only I had this story of debauchery before I got saved in a miraculous, you know, uh, coming to salvation, then, um, 
you know, I'd probably love him more, but otherwise, I don't know, I guess I'm stuck. Um, but this is not what that's saying. That's not how we should come away with this. Uh, that, was, that was incorrect. What I failed to grasp was that my sins were, in fact, many. I had been forgiven much. I am now forgiven much. And we all are. Again, we don't measure ourselves by other people. By other people, as a kid, sure, I was a pretty good kid. But if I were to measure myself by God's standards and even looking back, eh, not good. There's been a lot of grace, a lot of, a lot of sins forgiven. And so it is for everybody who looks to Christ Jesus. We've all been forgiven much. And the good news is that God extends grace to sinners. And so there's no reason for any of us, if we're trusting in Christ, to hide our sin. If, if we're talking about sin up here, we're looking at the scriptures, and the scriptures, can, you know, they, uh, they, they convict you of sin, something you've done or said or thought, that's sinfulness. You don't need to just push it off. You're like, no, nah, it's not that bad. Just bring it to the light. Because God is a gracious God who forgives sinners. So just confess it to Him. There's nothing to hide from. There's grace for the worst of us. I'll just add, you know, whatever we are saying publicly, you know, as we are maybe um, talking with people at work, as we're interacting, social media, wherever it might be, uh, if you know, if we're having public debates about morality, what's right and what's wrong, um, as we're doing all those things, this is the message that we, we, we need to make clear also goes out. The fact that God, through the gospel, is calling sinners to himself. The fact that men and women need this grace and that this grace is in fact available to everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ. So even as we're arguing over something that's right, you know, the standards of God perhaps, and some debate you're having, uh, don't just stop there. Go beyond that to help people see that even though they've violated this, there's grace and there's forgiveness for sinners. Okay, number two. The gracious forgiveness of God changes a person changes a person. So Christianity, I've said, is a religion for sinners, but it doesn't mean that it's made up of people who celebrate sin in any way. That's not what I mean by it's a, it's a religion for sinners. This is clear, I think, in the verses that we've already looked at. This woman, she went from living a sinful lifestyle, a very publicly sinful lifestyle, to instead publicly displaying her love and her gratitude and her submission to Jesus. So we looked a few weeks ago at how a Christian is one who has been made new from within. They've been born again, given a new heart, regenerated, different phrases and words for the same thing. And it's from this new heart that a Christian now lives a fruitful life. A life of obedience, new desires to want to please God, to show love to Christ. This is what Jesus taught when he said in 6.43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. 
And so this is what's happening with this lady in chapter 7. She has received forgiveness, and it has changed her. She was a bad tree. She became known for all the bad fruit she produced. But now, because of God's grace, she's been made new. She's now a good tree that is bearing good fruit. She's displaying this ongoing fruit of repentance. It's clear from what Jesus said, also that she, she received this forgiveness prior to this event. And now as she comes, she's, she's showing the fruit of this. She's displaying her love and her affection and gratitude for the grace she's been shown. She's weeping, we're told, likely out of gratitude for this debt she, that's been dismissed, that's been pardoned, forgiven, that's been canceled. Perhaps out of a sense of repentance as well and grief over her own sin, probably both those things, gratitude and, and some grief for her sin. She washed his feet. This is a task for the lowliest of servants, for slaves to do. She poured out expensive perfume on his feet. This is something she could have just sold and got the money for. She could have used it in some other capacity. But instead, she broke this jar, poured it out on Christ's feet. It was a sacrifice. It shows all she had, she owed to Christ. Everything was his. She's not rebuked for this. There's a later story later in, in the life of Christ when a similar thing occurs. His head is anointed by a woman of ill repute who uh, pours uh, this similar uh, perfume on his head and they grumble. That could have been sold and the righteous ones in the group said and the money given to the poor. Uh, but Jesus never does rebuke the woman uh, there or here for doing this. It's an, it's an, it's an offering of worship. It's laying it down at Christ's feet. It's, he's worthy of this gift. All she had was owed to Christ. This woman was a changed woman. The grace of God had made her new. She had been a well-known sinner, but now she was a well-known believer. Consider this, that at the time of this is go that this is going on, she's known as a sinner, right? But now, what is she known as? Now, in the pages of Scripture, as this is recorded for us, she's an example of a woman of faith. A woman who responded to God's grace, repented of her sins, trusted in Christ, came and laid herself at his feet, expressed her love for him. And we now know her as a woman who is a woman of faith. And this is exemplary for us. She was a changed woman. And she's an illustration of what it means to have a new heart, of what it looks like to be a Christian. It is a religion for sinners, but it also leads to a change in one's heart and actions. You might remember the words, I know John Calvin said them, some people attribute them first to Luther, but the words, it's therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. That is, true saving faith is accompanied by works of faith, it's accompanied by obedience, by love for the Lord. Why is this? How is this the case? Because salvation involves actually being made new from within. Actually having a bad tree be made new into a good tree. It's not just, you know, being a Christian is not just a, a decision we make like we make other decisions, just mental assent to something. No, a Christian is one who's been made new, actually converted to Christ and changed, actually regenerated. 
So this works its way out in acts of love and faith and obedience to Christ. And so this is a cause to examine ourselves. Have we believed? Is there fruit? Is there the fruit of repentance in my life? Do I love the Lord for his pardoning of my massive debt? If you just want that as some sort of insurance, sort of something in the back pocket so you can kind of do your thing and just, you know, well, I already, I, I've, I've got that card and, and so I, I don't really, you know, if, if, you, if that's your attitude and you're, you don't really have love in the Lord, love for the Lord in your heart, uh, then this would suggest and the Bible's teachings would suggest you've not been converted. The gracious forgiveness of God changes a person. Thirdly, the gracious forgiveness of God is received by faith in Jesus who has the authority to forgive sins, the authority to dispense the grace of God. So let's look at verse 48 again, go to the end. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So Jesus reassures her that her sins are forgiven. That must have been incredibly comforting news to hear out of Christ's mouth right then and there. No doubt she had heard Jesus teach elsewhere or someone else had told her what Jesus taught. She believed that he was the Messiah, the one who was to come. She believed she needed him and needed faith in him to be forgiven of her sins. And now she comes to express her gratitude for this. And he assures her that her sins have been forgiven. And in case it's unclear as to how it is she received this, Jesus makes it clear in verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She's forgiven by faith. Faith in what? Well, clearly from this, faith in Jesus. He is the one with the authority to declare sins to be forgiven. The people... Uh, that are that are gathered around at this at this meal, they make this clear that they think Jesus is claiming to be the one who has authority to forgive sins. They do this when they ask the question, uh, "Who is this who even forgives sins?" Right. So they know Jesus is not just saying, "You know, I'm pretty sure God's forgiving you." To this woman, he's declaring this thing authoritatively: your sins are forgiven. This is similar back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the paralytic and the Pharisees think he's uttering blasphemy since God alone has the authority to forgive sins. That's what they say. And so Jesus then goes on to demonstrate, to prove to them that the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sins. So there it was clear that's what he's, he's getting at. This, this miracle was showing that he has the authority to forgive sins, proving who he is. And here again, he is exercising his authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins upon this woman. And again, people are stumbling at this. Who is this that has authority to, to, that, that claims to forgive sins? So she received this pardon by believing in the promised Messiah. Jesus, the one prophesied from of old, was here. And she was saved by faith. God does not save those who first clean themselves up. 
He doesn't save those who already are pretty good or who think they're pretty good, as Simon thought. The Pharisees thought they were good to go, uh, rich people. Uh, you remember when Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And the response is, well, who can be saved? Because the assumption was rich people have the blessing of God on them. Uh, the Pharisees try really hard and are outwardly really holy. Uh, therefore, if, if you know, a rich person can't be saved, what hope of any of us? Well, Jesus didn't come to save those who think they're good or those who are wealthy. He came for sinners. He justifies ungodly men and women. We cannot receive this salvation by any other way than by faith, just believing. This, what is seen here, what is being said here and taught here, it's distinctively Protestant theology. Sola fide, faith alone, is what justifies a person. It's not just that it's Protestant, it's biblical. And that's why the Protestant reformers taught this doctrine. That's why we hold it today. Notice that Jesus says, verse 48, her sins are forgiven. Then he calls this being saved in verse 50. And then he says, go in peace. So these are three things that are nearly synonymous with each other. To be forgiven is to be saved. So to be, to be saved is to be at peace with God. To be at peace with God is to be forgiven. All of these things are very closely related. They're almost synonymous, slightly different nuances, but... To be forgiven is to be saved. To be saved is to be at peace with God. And this is the core of the Christian message, that mankind stands at enmity with God, not at peace with Him, because of our sinfulness. We stand condemned under the wrath of God because of this, because of our sins. But God the Father has sent His Son, Jesus, to earth to make a way for us to be reconciled to Him. That is, to be at peace with Him. And this happens on account of our sins being forgiven. And we receive this, and we are saved, and we are at peace with God by faith, by believing in Jesus and having our sins thereby pardoned. This is why Christ came. This is the core of the Gospel, right here. Again, the Christian gospel, it's not a self-help message. It's not just look at people. You've sinned. You, you clearly fall short. Get your act together. Okay, that is not the gospel. That is law, and that will only condemn them further, because as hard as they try, that was close. As hard as they try, they will never clean themselves up. They will never make themselves equal to God's standard. And so... The next part of that is, as we talk about God's standard, is that there is grace extended to sinners. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't clean up enough to come to Him. We cannot perform enough sacraments that will change us and make us good enough. We need a gracious pardon from God received by faith. So Christianity is a religion for sinners. Christians, we're all just beggars who've been given bread, trying to tell others and show others where they too might find bread. 
We are not inherently better than other people. If we believe, it's because God has been gracious to us. He's opened our eyes and we've received His grace through believing, through faith. It's as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is exactly what we see happening in Luke chapter 7. Do you see the similarities? Do you see this? Paul's not just making up his theology out of nowhere like so many people think. So many people will try and put a divide between what Jesus says and what's happening in the Gospels and what men like Paul or Peter say. They'll almost discredit Paul and Peter and try to make you focus on the things Jesus said as though they're different things. No, they're not different things. Paul is getting his theology from Jesus. And we can see that clearly here. This woman is not boasting of anything. She's been forgiven much. She's received this by faith. And now because of that, she's been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And she's displaying that by coming and just thanking Him. So grace is available for the worst of us, the worst of sinners. And this is good news for all of us. Because again, if all of our sins were public knowledge, we would all be viewed as notorious sinners. And so it is good news that God saves sinners. I just want to close with the words of a song that we sing often. They reference a dying thief. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, both presumably guilty of their crimes, obviously known sinners, exposed, caught, busted. The song lyrics say this, The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. That is the fountain of Christ's blood that washes away the sins for the worst of sinners. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we truly don't have words for the amount of grace we've been shown. Our debt of sin is far greater than we, than any of us could possibly know. And with each passing day, it becomes more evident that that debt was larger than we first knew. God, I pray you help us to see that, to see your holiness and righteousness, that we might know the depth of our sins. Not that we might be depressed and mopey, but that we might rejoice in the greatness of our forgiveness and might be filled with great love for you and thankfulness to you. Father, may we make it known that this fountain is still open. That you are still extending grace to sinners now. And that everybody who hears the gospel proclaimed, hears that call to be forgiven, to be washed clean. Father, may we know, may we be known for this message. Whatever else we be known for, good as those things would be, may we be known for this message, that we are simply sinners who've been forgiven much, and that it's our longing for other sinners to join in and to likewise be washed clean. 
Father, we thank you for the tremendous grace you've shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.